Contracting for the Climate. Focus on contractual updates. Welcome to Construction and the Climate. This is a podcast series from 39 Essex Chambers with me, Camilla Tahar and Ruth Keating. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing the big climate issues affecting the construction sector. Today, we're joined by Jeremy Glover. Jeremy specialises in construction energy and engineering law at home and abroad. He's a member of both the advisory panel of the Built Environment Committee for the Chancery Lane Project and the FIDIC Net Zero Task Group, TG23, as well as being the president-elect of the Dispute Resolution Board Foundation. Jeremy, it's great to have you on the podcast today. As our listeners will be aware, lots of contracts that we're familiar with, such as the JCT, FIDIC and NEC, are already starting to grapple with this really important intersection between construction and the climate. As Camilla mentioned there, in particular, you've been working on the FIDIC Net Zero Task Group. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that work, Jeremy, and what it might mean for the sector? Yes, of course. And thank you both very much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. I mean, I think it might help to first look at what we might mean when we talk about sustainability in construction projects. There are many different ideas and concepts. It's not just about net zero. We look at resource efficiency, look at use of non-renewable materials. We talk about climate resilience. And there's a lot of design work and design thought that goes into that. There's lots of modelling scenarios that people put together. Also, we have to think about the socioeconomic conditions of projects. How do we work with local communities? What are the labour and working conditions? And increasingly as well today, we're looking at the idea of the whole life cycle of a project, construction, use, repair, replace, reuse, recycling. And there's a lot of talk today about retrofitting, the modifying of existing structures to improve performance, to make them more energy efficient. So it's not just about net zero. And this is something that I think FIDIC takes incredibly seriously. FIDIC launched a climate change charter in November 2021, a call to action for organisations, companies, and importantly, individuals in the engineering sector to do what they can do in support of the climate change goals. But FIDIC talked about the goals that are agreed in the various United Nations climate change conferences, COP26, COP27, looking to encourage climate change adaption, looking to see how carbon emissions can be reduced. FIDIC also recently, very recently in the last few weeks, released the State of the World Report, Digital Technology on a Path to Net Zero, looking at the practical role technology currently has in the development of infrastructure and also how this will change as we move forward with increased retrofitting, carbon reduction and the increasing cooperation we need to do, collaborating with each other. And a really important part of all this, getting to the kernel of your question, is looking to adapt the FIDIC suite of contracts to see how you can complement the advances and changes happening all around us. I think it's quite important that contracts shouldn't be seen as a bar. They shouldn't be seen as a reason why the environmental elements and aspects of projects are left behind. FIDIC already has Clause 4.18, which requires the contractor to protect the environment. But FIDIC want to, and I think FIDIC need to do more. One of the most interesting issues that FIDIC are looking at, and it's going to be a mix of guidance and maybe some contract amendments, we're looking at the possibility of setting up some form of carbon balance sheet the idea would be that goals are established at an early stage in the project and then progress can be measured. And here there's a good example of the link between digital technology and net zero because how should the carbon emission goals actually be set up in the first place? And then how do you actually measure the emissions on the project? 
And then it comes the question about, indeed, who should actually be doing it? And then you get other interesting aspects. I mean, Camilla mentioned my role with the Dispute Board Foundation, the DRBF. Well, one of the things we're looking at is dispute avoidance, dispute resolution. And one of the key parts of the FIDIC contract, the key parts of dispute avoidance, is the role of the Dispute Board, who are there throughout the duration of the project. And it's interesting to look at the role of Dispute Boards in all this, from small points about how to reduce emissions, how do you achieve a balance between site meetings face-to-face site meetings, which are a key part of the conflict and dispute avoidance role of the dispute board, and then virtual meetings that may be more climate-friendly and more difficult to achieve the dispute avoidance roles. And then, of course, when it comes to the question about who should be measuring the carbon emissions, well, I don't think the dispute board would ever say they have the technological background to measure the emissions themselves, but they might be people who can actually look at the reporting And there might be a means to use the site meetings as a means for reporting how people are getting on against the balance sheets. So there's a lot going on and you'll certainly be hearing more from FIDIC very soon. Certainly a lot going on and a lot our listeners should be considering in thinking about goals and responsibilities as well as dispute avoidance. Can you tell our listeners about any other clauses they should be aware of? For example, NEC 4X29. Yes, well, the NEC4 contract, they're already a few steps ahead. They've got their own, as you say, X29 clause. And this is very flexible, which I think is really important because different projects, wherever they're based, different regions, are going to have different aims, different goals. And the idea is that the client uses a performance table to set out specific climate change targets. So it's not just limited to a carbon balance sheet. There could be other goals and targets that they're looking to set. And I say it's very flexible. When the climate change requirements, when they set out minimum requirements, then it might be that a failure to comply would be a defect, but it doesn't have to be so purgative. Parties are free to agree financial incentives to achieve these targets or to use the performance table simply as a tool to measure and record the performance achieved. And there's a role there for the contractor to propose changes that may lessen the climate change impact of the works with a duty on the project manager to address any such proposal. And NEC, they, will, they traditionally always have this early warning clause, encouraging parties to just give a warning about when there's a potential problem on the contract. And X29 reinforces that and says that parties should notify each other when they become aware of any matter which could adversely affect the achievement of the climate change requirements. So NEC are there. They're discussing to see how the clause is working and it may be amended in the future, but there's one that's out there and parties are using it. I think that's really interesting to hear what's happening in the world of FIDIC and also NEC. And as you say, that line the parties need to decide as to whether these kinds of issues are treated as defects, and that's how the contract deals with them, or whether you work in incentive structures. I think that's a really important and practical thing that our listeners can take away. We've dealt with FIDIC and NEC. Is there any work around the JCT that could be coming down the line the listeners should be thinking about? Yes. I mean, I understand that there is. The JCT24 is coming out next year, the clue being in the name of the contract. And one of the things that the JCT have said they're going to do is what they've termed future proofing, which means they're going to include changes in the new contract to reflect objectives of the construction playbook, which is out in the UK. And they're looking to incorporate previously optional supplemental provisions relating to collaborative working sustainable development into the main contract themselves. So instead of being an option, they're now going to be there as part and parcel of the standard 
contract terms. So the idea behind the sustainable development and environmental considerations is that the contract as currently drafted is encouraged to suggest economically viable amendments to the works, which might result in an improvement in environmental performance in the carrying out of those works. Then if you link that with the concept of performance indicators and monitoring, well, the employer then shall monitor and assess the contractor's performance by reference to any performance indicators that are identified. So you can see some similarities there with the idea of the performance table in the X29 contract. And where the employer considers that a target may not be met, well, then they can ask the contractor, well, do something about it. And I think the idea really where JCC seem to be going is that the indicators and targets, they relate to net zero and sustainability. When you start talking about targets, you may be talking about sort of incentives that you're mentioning, Ruth. You mentioned incentives already. And practically speaking, how can parties be incentivized to include or retain those in-contracts optional clauses? How can incentives be put out there? It's a good question. And in fact, it's probably the best question. It's the most important question. So I think you can see what both the JCT and the NEC are looking to do. They're setting up performance indicators, they're monitoring performance, and the next stage there is some kind of risk-reward process. Now, FIDIC, you mentioned FIDIC 418, it's excellent insofar as it goes. It says that the contractors shall ensure the emissions, discharges, pollutants from their activities shall exceed neither the values indicated in the employer's requirements nor those prescribed by the applicable laws. So if the contractor fails to do that, that's a breach of contract. But where's the incentive to the contractor? Where's the incentive for the contractor to achieve the sustainable goals that we're all talking about, the goals that might be set in the contract? Whether we're talking about going down the road to net zero, whether we're simply talking about encouraging reuse or recycling, which is much more relevant in many parts of the world, when we're setting these goals, we've got to make them realistic. We've got to try and make them achievable. But also you've got to think about the most likely way you can achieve some of these things is through encouraging innovation. So then you've got to look to reward the party that takes the risk. So you need to set up, I think, some form of risk reward scheme to encourage contractors, encourage designers, encourage those in the supply chain. And I think that you can see that in the NEC X29, the idea of the performance table. And it looks like that's where the JCT may be going, or at least giving parties an option. And I certainly think it's something that FIDIC are considering when they talk about the concept of the carbon balance sheet. I think that's absolutely key when you say, how do you retain these clauses? How do you include them? That risk reward process and getting that right is going to be absolutely central. And as you say, rewarding innovation, sometimes in risk-based projects, that isn't something that we're all very good at, but it is something we're going to have to think about in terms of dealing with these kinds of issues. What are your practical tips, Jeremy, for advisors and those in the sector that are thinking about including or retaining these clauses in the projects they're working on? Well, one of the issues that parties do think about, well, how do I deal with climate change? Do I just put all the information in the scope, the technical part of the contract, or should I perhaps think about amending my contract? I think the traditional view, as we'd call it, climate change requirements they're principally technical matters to be addressed in the scope. Since the most relevant aspects relate to the work specification, performance requirements, choice of materials and the working methods. And if you do that, I think the, the theory was, well, then you only give a light provision to change 
the standard form construction contracts in respect of green issues. But particularly thinking about and taking further the idea of rewarding innovation, I think there's much more interest today in the idea of green drafting or being prepared to make more substantial amendments to the front end of the contract. I think there's a desire to go further. You're looking to embed a wider range of net zero objectives in the construction and supply chain management, thinking about design principles and thinking about how you're actually going to reward these innovations. So I think you're seeing there's more interest now in thinking about what you do in the main contract provisions. You can't just shunt everything into the scope. And I don't think that you should be looking to do that. I mean, some people think, well, what about legislation? Most contracts say, well, every contract says that, you know, it's got to be up to date and you've got to comply with the current legislation. Well, that's good enough. Well, I suppose in theory it is, but I think, to be honest, it's not legislation that's driving reductions in the use of emissions at the moment. It's everybody else and it's pressure from below. So I don't think you can just rely on legislation. You've got to think about contract clauses. People always talk about insurance. Are these clauses insurable? It's much more difficult. It's quite new concepts. How might you insure, uh, say, a building within 10 years' time hasn't actually achieved the progress or hasn't achieved what was anticipated today? It's quite a difficult concept. I mean, they'll get there because you can normally insure most things, but at the moment, it's much more difficult. Um, there's a cost. You know, if there's an additional cost, who should be bearing that cost? But I think the cost is upfront. So there may be this outlay at the initial part of the contract, but the idea is that through retrofitting carbon reduction, that should lead to a long-term saving. But again, it's something that you need to be thinking about. But I mean, there's also, you look for what's happening, where the pressure's coming from. What do the owners think? What do the employees think? What do the funders think? Now, it's interesting that if you look globally, the World Bank are introducing rated criteria in September of this year. And the World Bank's chief procurement officer, Enzo de Valentis, he explained why they were doing this. A key objective of procurement in bank operations to help borrowers achieve sustainable development objectives. Rated criteria help to better manage environmental, social, supply chain and cybersecurity risk, amongst many other things. Now, the point there is, if funders are leading, you have to follow. So, we're talking about practical tips for advisors, but you've got to do it. You've got to start thinking about what to do. And there are a number of challenges. I mean, obviously, one of the most difficult ones, sort of technical one, there's no consensus really on how to measure carbon. You don't know what to do. There's no consensus. How do you know? How do you understand that you've complied with the climate obligations in contracts when there's no current objective measure? And that's why I talked earlier about the links between digital technology and the issues that we're talking about. Carbon reporting requirements do vary globally, and that can make compliance difficult. So one of the things you need to be thinking about, and I mean, it's good contract practice anyway, inconsistent definitions, people using different terms to mean the same thing. It's a recipe for confusion. We saw it with the development of BIM building information modeling, everyone was using different terms to talk about the same things. And I think something that needs to happen, and it's certainly something you need to be aware of when you're drafting and considering clauses, looking for a common language, looking for everyone using the same terms. I mean, consistency in using terms reduces risk. 
I mean, it's a fairly standard thing in construction contract, any contract drafting very much applies here. So look to see where there's government guidance. Look, for example, the UK government playbook. There's the government good practice guidance for procurement regulations. I think it's PPN 21. Now, they're going to be look to see what terms they are actually using. But you see that clients, funders, they're interested in emissions disclosed. They're interested in looking for what parties are reporting. The UK playbook, suppliers bidding for major government contracts must detail their commitment to achieving net zero through the publication of a carbon reduction plan. So you've got to look to see what people are doing. But finally, if we're talking strictly about practical tips for advisors, practical tips for those who are looking to include clauses in the projects that they're working on, there's no better resource than go and have a look to see what the Chancery Lane projects are up to. Their website, www.chancerylaneproject.org. They've got, I think it's over 30 template detailed clauses for the built environment sector. There's also notes and guidance so you can see how those clauses have evolved and see what those clauses mean. You can see that they try and use a consistent wording and you'll know that they've been peer reviewed. Because one of the good things about the Chancery Lane project is that lawyers from a number of disciplines and a number of firms, not just in the UK as well, they're looking to sort of broaden internationally, had a look at the clauses. So you know that they've been thought about very carefully. So they're an absolutely excellent starting point. Because the other thing, coming back to one of my first points, you have to remember, every project is different. Every project is going to have different requirements, whether you're talking about carbon emissions, whether you're talking about retrofitting. So do your research, have a look, but don't just blindly cut and paste. Terrible thing when it comes to construction contracts. Make sure that your contract terms fit the requirements of your particular project. But it, it's exciting. It's innovative and there's a lot going on. So you need to keep up to date and be properly informed. Thank you very much, Jeremy. It certainly is innovative and exciting. And it's a great reminder to start thinking about with any contract, really thinking early about what you want, who the stakeholders are, what their goals are, measurements, requirements, and importantly, the consistency of definitions. Thank you very much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.